Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. A new proposal to reunite families separated at the border. Some of these children, two or three years old, haven't seen their parents more than half their life or almost their entire life. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Heineman. This is KPBS Midday Edition. A big incentive package is proposed for California school reopenings. Districts need to reopen transitional kindergarten through second grade classrooms by April 1st to get their share of that money. Climate advocates urge San Diego to move away from natural gas. And we'll hear about the latest Digital Without Walls presentation at La Jolla Playhouse. That's ahead on Midday Edition. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. About 500 children separated from their parents at the U.S.-Mexico border under the Trump administration have still not been reunited with their families. As part of a task force plan to find and reunite families, the U.S. announced this week that a lawful pathway is being considered to allow those parents to reunite and stay with their children in the U.S. Department of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas says the administration is also working with Central American nations to help find the parents. Mayorkas also urged patience as the Biden administration works to restore an immigration system that he says has been badly dismantled during the Trump years. Joining me is Lee Gallant. He is deputy director of the ACLU Immigrants Rights Project. And Lee, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Can you remind us why it's so difficult to find the parents of these children? The Trump administration did not give us the full list of parents till very, very late in the litigation. And then once they gave us the list of names, they failed to disclose contact information, phone numbers, addresses, till very, very recently, toward the end of the Trump administration. Beyond that, it is difficult and dangerous to search for families if we don't have phone numbers. COVID has made it even more difficult. 
And so these remaining 500 families that we haven't found are ones where we do not have working phone numbers for the families and have to undergo searches on the ground. But one thing that I think is critical for people to understand is there are many more families than 500 who remain separated. The 500 are just the families that we have not yet been able to locate. We have located hundreds and hundreds of other families who we are in contact with, but remain separated because the Trump administration gave them only two brutal choices. Stay separated from your child or bring your child back to the very danger from which they fled. Many parents understandably chose not to bring their child back because it was essentially a death sentence for the child. So we are looking for the Biden administration not only to help us find the remaining 500, but to reunite all of the families that were separated by the Trump administration, those we've already found and those we hope will find fairly soon. But at the end of the day, Trump administration separated more than 5,500 children, many just babies and toddlers. So there's a lot of work to be done beyond just finding the last 500. What has been the protocol for reuniting families until now? Can't those families stay in the U.S.? So the families where both the parent and child were in the U.S. have largely been reunited. The problem is that the Trump administration deported hundreds and hundreds of parents without their children. And so not only have we had to locate the parent, usually in Central America, and locate the child in the U.S., but then we needed to get them reunited. The Trump administration would not allow them to be reunited in the United States. Through a court order, we have gotten some of the parents back to the United States. But that has been the process up till now, is going through the court, which which can be a slow process and, and a difficult one. What we are hoping is that the Biden administration now creates a streamlined process to allow the parents to return to the United States to be with their children. That's what we believe these parents and children are owed. You know, what medical groups have said is this was straight out child abuse by the United States government. The least we can do now is allow them to reunify in safety in the United States, give them permanent status, and give them some restitution. And we are talking about, in President Biden's words, a real moral and national stain. And I've been doing this work nearly 30 years, and I've never seen anything that remotely comes to to this level of, of horror. Secretary Mayorkas made a point in urging patience as the Biden administration tries to reconstitute a workable immigration system. Would you agree that much of that system was dismantled under the Trump administration? We would, but I think there's a difference between getting the system up and running and delaying indefinitely. But I want to I want to make a one introductory point about this is that the family separation issue can be tackled immediately. The parents, the 5,500 parents who were separated can be dealt with distinctly and immediately. Um, And I don't think actually Secretary Mayorkas was talking about the family separation practice when he said that we need time to build up the asylum system. I think he was talking about allowing new people in at the border. And so we are sympathetic to what the Biden administration faces, given how the Trump administration dismantled the asylum system. But we do think they can be doing more right now and doing it quicker. So while we, you know, we are sympathetic, we do want to see concrete action. And I think at some point, advocates on the ground will 
lose patience with too slow a process. So what are the next steps in getting the rest of the children reunited with their families? There's two steps. One is that we need to continue to find these families, and that's been done by the ACLU and a steering committee and other groups through the missile litigation the ACLU brought. Um, and then the other part is for the families that we have found, immediately getting their names to the Biden administration task force to have them be given permission to come back to the United States to reunite with their children. And some of these children, two or three years old, haven't seen their parents in years, you know, more than half their life or almost their entire life. And so to immediately get those parents back. So we will be giving the Biden administration the names of families that have been separated, we have already found, and hope that they give those families immediate permission to return. Once here, we expect them not to be deported and for a pathway to permanent permanent status um, be explored, and hopefully that can be done, as well as restitution. The families need basic necessities. They also critically need trauma care help. I mean, these are children that are, are have been traumatized so severely, perhaps permanently. What the medical community says, some of, some of the trauma has been so severe that likely their brain structure has literally changed. So we'll be looking for full relief for those families and, you know, feeding the names of those families that we have found immediately to the Biden administration. But at the same time, we need to continue looking for the remaining 500. I've been speaking with Lee Gallard, Deputy Director of the ACLU Immigrants' Rights Project. And Lee, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. A new state school reopening plan sets April 1st as the target for school districts across the state to get their full share of special reopening funds. The deal struck by Governor Newsom and state legislators would allocate more than $6 billion for school safety measures and to address pandemic learning loss. Several school districts in San Diego have already announced reopening plans for this month. And even though the county's largest district set April 12th as its reopening date, San Diego Unified still expects to get most of its fair share. Joining me is KPBS education reporter Joe Hong. Joe, welcome. Thanks for having me. Joe, can you explain what school districts need to do to get the full amount of the proposed reopening funds? Right. So... First off, there's $2 billion in incentives available where districts need to reopen transitional kindergarten through second grade classrooms by April 1st to get their share of that money. Now, the district's county needs to be below 25 daily cases per 100,000 residents, but most counties will meet that mark. And what can the additional $4 billion of these funds be used for? Districts will sort of have flexibility in, in how they spend that money. It can be used on everything from uh, more personal protective equipment to investing in in an extended school year. So uh, school districts can provide summer school for all students, and they can also invest in things like mental health services, really uh, anything that they feel like their students need. This plan is offering what it calls incentives for schools to reopen, not mandates. How does Governor Newsom describe it? Yeah, so uh, Governor Newsom is hoping that as as more districts start to reopen for in-person, um, the public education system across the state will sort of develop a rhythm and, and get more comfortable with being back in the classroom. And here's what he said yesterday. Once you dip your toe in, once you build a cohort, 
confidently, once you build trust, then we will start to see a cadence of reopening across the spectrum. But again, on the basis of building confidence and trust. San Diego Unified has already announced its reopening target in April. So is our largest district going to lose out? I don't think so. Um, I, I spoke with school board president Richard Barrera yesterday, and he told me the district is going to make the case that the district should get the full amount it's entitled to. Right now, the district is planning on welcoming students back on April 12th, with teachers coming back a week earlier on April 5th. But because the week before that is spring break, um, Barrera says the district is essentially meeting the state's timeline. Here's what he told me yesterday. It allows us uh, right after spring break uh, to have a week where the staff is on campus preparing and getting trained in all the mitigation strategies that are necessary to keep everybody safe. And San Diego Unified is the second largest district in the state, and so it could get a significant amount from these incentives. Uh, from the $2 billion, the district could get between 25 and $30 million. And on top of that, uh, from the additional $4.6 billion, uh, San Diego Unified could get a total of up to $100 million of additional funding total. What about some of the other districts around the county? Yeah, so we, we kind of have a mixed bag in San Diego County. We have South Bay Union, uh, which announced that it will remain closed for the rest of the school year, while we have uh, districts in the in the North County, like San Diego Union High, which plans to reopen on March 8th, and uh, Poway Unified plans to reopen middle and high schools on March 15th. And uh, when it comes to San Diego Unified, there's a further complication in the reopening plans, isn't there? What about the commitment to get teachers and staff vaccinated? Right. So in the agreement between the union and and the school district, um, like you said, it does require that teachers are vaccinated before they return. But um, after talking to teachers union leaders and and district officials, it seems like April 12th is a very realistic date as long as vaccinations sort of continue to go smoothly. Now, this state fund incentive only targets transitional kindergarten through second grade. When are the higher grades and high schools expected to reopen? That is still unclear. There's no real sort of blanket guidelines from the state as of now. Um, There are some caveats in the uh, $2 billion of, of funds where districts that are already sort of in the red tier have to reopen at least one grade in middle and high school to get that funding. But besides that, there's there's nothing statewide yet. Okay, then I've been speaking with KPBS education reporter Joe Hong. Joe, thank you. Thank you, Maureen. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.
This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Kavanaugh with Jade Heineman. California is spending more than $200 million to stabilize habitat along the southern edge of the Salton Sea in Imperial County. It is good news for residents concerned about their health, but the restoration could also impact lots of people who draw water from the Colorado River. KPBS reporter Eric Anderson has the story. Tom Anderson walked across a dry patch of salty, flat land just five years ago. Fish and Wildlife Service project manager was showing off an area on the eastern edge of California's largest lake. He dragged his black work boot across the crusty surface, turning it into fine dust. The really fine stuff that comes up on a windy day just is like billowing clouds of that fine material off of the playa. The lake was shrinking even then because Imperial County water managers sold some of their Colorado River water to San Diego. The pace of the lake's retreat jumped dramatically a few years ago, and now thousands of acres of lake bed are exposed to the desert winds. Wade Crowfoot is California's Natural Resources Secretary. He says the state is finally ready to help. The notion of the shrinking sea and the emissive um, dust from the seabed Uh, is really alarming and concerning to local residents. California is spending money to cover 4,000 acres of exposed lake bed with shallow water and habitat. It's the first of many projects on the southern edge of the lake that could end up costing billions of dollars. It's a long time in coming. There's a real impatience of residents in Imperial and Riverside counties about restoration, stabilization of the sea. California agreed to take on the Salton Sea restoration when Colorado River users and the federal government signed the Quantification Settlement Agreement back in 2003. That deal cleared the way for the Imperial County to sell its water to urban areas like San Diego. It also cut the flow of water into the thirsty desert lake, exposing thousands of acres of dusty lake bed. Every time we're peeling, peeling back every inch of that playa, we're exposing over 100 years of contaminated sediment. Luis Olmedo has worked for years to draw attention to the valley's dirty air. The entire air basin uh, from Coachella, Imperial, Mexicali, uh, we all share the air. We failed to meet federal standards. Farms, trucks, cross-border factories all combine to heighten the public health risk. Is it because we're over 85% Latinos, people of color, living in poverty, that we're not worth that investment? You know, and here now we have the Salton Sea, you know, to add, you know, salt to injury. Olmedo welcomes any project that improves air quality. And that's what this delivers, you know, but it's, it's just one little tiny project to this massively drying area. Since the QSA was signed, some 24,000 acres of have been exposed. Michael Cohen studies western water issues at the Pacific Institute. Projections are it could be another 40 to 60,000 acres, not accounting for the water use by the projects themselves. Some projections suggest it could be 100,000 acres of lake bed could be exposed. The public health threat adds urgency. So does the lake's unique role in western water politics. The Imperial Irrigation District has senior water rights to about 20 percent of the Colorado River's flow. And Cohen says the IID managers hope to leverage that power to funnel money into the Salton Sea restoration efforts. But that raises questions. 
should the people and the birds, uh, the people in the environment suffer to deliver additional water to uh, people on the coast of California. Colorado River Basin is in a nearly two decades long drought. The dry spell is the worst drought on record and fossils indicate it may be the driest period the basin has endured in more than a thousand years. The real driver now is climate change. The reduced flows also put extra pressure on California officials trying to keep the Salton Sea from becoming a public health disaster. Eric Anderson, KPBS News. San Diego is looking at a plan to meet climate goals by proposing a train station and high-speed rail to cut fossil fuels with fewer cars on the roads. Activists say that moves us forward, but not far enough. Most homes still rely on natural gas. And as San Diego Union-Tribune reporter Joshua Emerson-Smith reports, while many cities in California have actually restricted the use of natural gas in new construction, San Diego has not. Josh, welcome. Good to be here. First, let's talk about how impactful natural gas is to how we live and the environment. It heats many of our homes, powers the water heater and our stoves. How does that contribute to climate change? Well, burning natural gas is a greenhouse gas. Uh, It's less impactful than, say, coal. And so there's lots of talk about trying to replace dirtier fossil fuels with natural gas, or there has been over the last decade or so. Although recently it's come to light that a lot of methane emissions leak from the procuring of natural gas, either from fracking sites or through the transportation. And we know that methane is an extremely potent greenhouse gas in and of itself. And and speaking of that, how much emissions actually come from using natural gas to power our homes? Yeah, so in in California, it's about 10 to 12 percent of our carbon footprint comes from homes, uh, either residential or commercial buildings. And all of that contributes to climate change. While San Diego has been seen as, you know, ahead of the curve in responding to that, activists say the city hasn't addressed the natural gas issue. Other areas, though, have done so with restrictions. What can you tell me about that? So there's thinking, there's a thinking going on that we're going to have to retrofit a lot of the homes that currently rely on gas, which are about 80% of all homes in California. And so if we're going to build more homes, why hook them up to natural gas if we're going to have to electrify them anyway in the future, goes the thinking. And so some cities have taken it upon themselves to ban the use of natural gas in new home and commercial construction. So practically speaking, that means new homes need to switch over to electrical appliances, right? Eventually, uh, that seems to be where the state is going. Uh, Right now, the state is trying to figure out how to just incentivize the use of electric appliances like electric heat pumps for space and water heating and induction cooktop stoves uh, to replace the old gas stoves. And it looks like the California Energy Commission is going to be revising its building efficiency standards in the next couple of uh, weeks or months. And as part of that, we're expected to see incentives for moving towards more electric homes. However, not an outright ban. That's why some cities have said they've got to move faster than the state is moving. 
So tell me about the politics that are at play here. What have local activists said about this issue? Well, that really is one of the most interesting things here because the activists have long wanted uh, so-called transit-oriented development. That's this super dense infill development where we put um, four, five-story buildings in urban areas next to transit to try to get people to take the trolley or whatever envisioned high-speed rail system we may have in the future over driving. And so they say, okay, if we're, if we're going to do this for the environment, how can natural gas play a part in that, right? Especially if we're going to have to go in and rip this stuff out later, why not just make sure everything gets hooked up to the electricity grid for this new greener future? And that's really where we're seeing this, this kind of cleave between the, the politicians and the environmentalists going forward. So it'll be very interesting to see as they move forward with their high-speed rail slash development plans, whether or not they continue to have the support of the, of the green groups in San Diego. And let me ask you this. If we move in that direction, how reliable is electricity, though? I mean, at times, utility companies rely on rolling blackouts to prevent wildfires because they can't bury their lines. Right. And but we have to remember that delivering gas also takes electricity. So just because you have a blackout doesn't necessarily mean that your gas is always going to work. There is this question, though, about as we heap more and more things on the electrical grid from gas stoves turning electric to vehicles, right, gas powered vehicles becoming electric, uh, will the grid be able to handle that? And that's kind of the conversation that we're having right now, especially in the wake of what we saw in Texas, where so many of the power plants um, were not able to deliver energy during a recent snowstorm. The question becomes, how do we really harden our electrical grid to prepare for this new future? And how have companies that provide natural gas, like SDG&E, responded to attempts to ban natural gas in new construction? Well, SDG&E hasn't really had a big uh, role in this. Southern Southern California Gas has been the one that's really launched the aggressive campaign to try to prevent these city-by-city bans. Gas companies have also tried to green up their product, so to speak. How have they done that? Right. Well, this is what all all the gas companies are doing now. And that's why you'll hear jargon like decarbonized molecules, because really the issue is they have billions and billions of dollars. I mean, we all do to a certain extent. Right. We all kind of own this as a society, billions and billions of dollars in in gas pipelines under the ground. And so these companies are trying to figure out what are they going to do with all that infrastructure going forward in a world where natural gas um, may, is increasingly restricted? And so they're experimenting with things um, like adding hydrogen to the mix to try to green it up, um, using biogas or renewable natural gas where they capture the um, emissions that come off of decomposing organic material. Although we don't really know what the product will be from the gas companies going forward. There's a lot of things that they're floating right now as kind of greener versions of natural gas. I've been speaking with San Diego Union Tribune reporter Joshua Emerson-Smith. Joshua, thank you. You're welcome. This has been great to be here. 
Governor Gavin Newsom announced an initiative last week to get more Central Valley farm workers vaccinated against COVID-19 as part of his plan to make distribution more equitable. Farm workers are showing interest in getting the vaccine, but they say information about how to get it is scarce. Valley Public Radio reporter Madi Bolaños has the story. Armando Celestino walks between rows of grapevines in a Madera County vineyard. He's handing out small Ziploc bags to farm workers filled with hand sanitizers, masks, and information on the COVID-19 vaccine. Hola, buenas tardes. Uh, mi nombre es Armando y venimos de Centro Binacional. Celestino works with Centro Binacional, a community organization that assists those who speak indigenous languages like Mixteco and Hipoteco. When Celestino hands a bag to Bernardino Cruz, Cruz stops trimming the vines and turns to speak with him. Celestino asks Cruz a series of questions. His name, his age, what languages he speaks, is work going well? Finally, he asks Cruz if he is interested in getting the vaccine. Well, I think yes, because, well, thank God I haven't gotten COVID, so yes. Cruz says it's his first time being approached about the vaccine, so he's not sure what the process entails. Celestino says many farm workers don't know what to expect. That's why we also ask if they're open to attending a meeting, where we can also have a specialist talk to them and give them the reassurance they need. He says meetings like that are especially important for those who have encountered misinformation from their social circles, social media, and even certain news sites. A lot of negative stuff. Like they say the vaccine has a chip. Also that the vaccine kills people, that's why they're afraid to take it. Still, Madeline Harris with the Leadership Council for Justice and Accountability says her organization has seen high levels of interest in getting the vaccine among farm workers. But she's concerned that local health departments often send out notices about vaccine appointments online or via automated text. shouldn't be the system for getting folks vaccinated. Because farm workers live in rural areas with poor internet access, she says, and spots fill up in minutes. When Governor Newsom stopped in Madeira to speak with the Leadership Council and Centro Binacional last week, Harris says they told him it's crucial for the state and county to partner with community organizations. Harris also says vaccine distributors should refrain from requiring pay stubs because many farm workers are undocumented and paid in cash. Back in Madeira, farm worker Andres Ramirez swiftly clips the tiny branches off of the grapevines. He pauses to talk about how he, his wife, and his three children contracted COVID in late December. It hit all of us, and we all came out of it around the same time, except for my wife. She is still not doing well. He says she still struggles to catch her breath. Still, he says he doesn't want to risk getting COVID again, so he's interested in taking the vaccine despite what he's heard from his community. A lot of people say it's not good, but with a lot of people getting it and not dying, it looks like if it's working. But like others, he says he's not sure where to go to get the vaccine. I'm Mari Bolaños in Fresno. Adam Uchan and Edmund Richardson met while they were incarcerated at San Quentin State Prison about two years ago. They've been best friends ever since. 
Adamu was released last fall, and they've kept in touch by writing letters to each other. Here's more on the deep connection these men share in an excerpt of the KALW public media podcast, Uncuffed. I got a letter from my man Edmund, CSP San Quentin, San Quentin, California, 94964. Yeah, that's familiar. I remember um, addressing my envelopes like that. Yeah, this is exciting. I don't get a lot of letters from the inside. And so I'm gonna go ahead and open this up. Uh, Adamu, I hope this letter finds you surrounded by your loved ones and with a deeper appreciation for your freedom. How are you doing? What's the adjustment to the streets been like for you? Man, when I got the news that you would be going home, a flood of emotions overcame me. I was excited, anxious, and sad. The bitter sweetness of the moment, realizing that the man whose soul I fell in love with over the last couple of years would no longer be near me. It's hard to take on the weight of the world alone, but with you, everything was bearable. I am truly happy you're home where you belong. As for myself, I'm doing good. I mean, every day that I wake up is a blessing, you know? I have no complaints. Okay, that's a lie. It's been nine months and some change, and I still can't stand this modified program and 23-hour lockdown. Then I had insult to injury after recovering from COVID-19. I haven't been the same. I'm what you call a long hauler, still suffering from the after effects of the virus. Around three months ago, I started to have heart palpitations, pressure on my lungs, and my short-term memory was gone. No, it is gone. The one thing that I hate the most is that I can't sleep. I think it's totally unrelated to COVID, more of a condition and circumstance thing. Anyway, the doctor diagnosed me with mild depression, prescribed me three milligrams of melatonin, and referred me to mental health. I still can't sleep. I know you suggested I see a therapist a long time ago, and honestly, I should have taken the advice. You never... This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. Uh, I hate you never think something like this can happen until it does. It's been a minute since I heard your voice, and when we talk over the phone, it's awkward. Awkward because my body and my senses are searching for you, but you're not there. I prefer being in someone's presence when I speak to them. I miss the sound of your laugh. I miss how you would get mad at me for stepping on your shoes because I was always randomly trying to hug you. I miss seeing you in the morning. I remember you made some sushi and put too much wasabi, and I bit into it and almost died. Let me be clear, spicy is not the same as lighter fluid being lit in your nostrils. I have memories like this one that are a constant reminder of how, how much, much I, I value, value our relationship. relationship. And, and more, more than, than anything, anything else, how, how much, much I, I miss you. I love you, your best friend, Edmund. Alright, so... I'm going to respond to Edmund. It's, it's his birthday. Um, it's, it's been a difficult process for me because I know how much a birthday means and I know that it's a celebration that should be shared with uh, family and loved ones. You know, I, I hope that uh, Edmund was able to celebrate in the right way. And so I wanted to express that in this letter. I hope you're doing as well as possible, despite the circumstances. It's your birthday today, and I'm thinking about you intensely, wondering how you're feeling, what you're eating, who you're with, 
And if you're laughing, a deep, joyful laugh that comes from deep down in a place untouched by the prison. Maybe I'm an idealist, but it feels like a radical act to celebrate your birthday in prison, to reclaim that part of yourself that is beyond any conception of a cage made for a human being. My hope is that today your joy doesn't feel contained by the walls that surround you or the judgments of those who don't know you because they've been taught not to see you. But I know that's a tall task. I was there and I know that the most difficult thing to overcome is this realization that the prison has gotten inside of us, that it has built walls between parts of ourselves, imprisoned our most precious gifts and obstructed the vision of our true purpose. It is something that I struggle with out here in the quote unquote free world, where I see shadows of the prison everywhere in this new Bay Area that I've entered. The Bay Area, and I'm sure this is true of all urban spaces across the US, is a place where every home, every business has a Black Lives Matter sign, but I don't see many Black people in the Bay Area anymore. And the ones that I do are either dirty, unhoused, with visible mental health issues, or they're the respectable Black folk that don't appear angry or play their music too loud. Maybe they're wearing a Salesforce sweatshirt. I think I just wanted to make the point that the relationship that we built, our friendship, has been key to disrupting all of this. It is where I'm able to be my truest self, where I learned the practice of accountability and care in relationships, where through our creative projects, I could see a future where we were successful creative partners, where together we played a part in creating a vibrant arts and academic community on the inside. But most importantly, our relationship allowed me to see beyond the walls that blocked our view of the ocean and horizon to see myself outside. I love you, brother. <clears throat> you don't even know. Thank you for sharing all of your precious stories with me. Even though, <clears throat> even though I know you only gained the power of storytelling, <clears throat> through suffering. I'm happy that you're finding ways to care for yourself in spite of such dire circumstances and in the absence of much direct support. Know that you are always here with me and I am always there and I will do everything in my power to see you at home sooner than you think. <laughs> happy born day, Edmund. I love you. Adamu. P.S. I ordered the book you asked for and another I thought you might like. You're turning out to be quite the bookworm. That was Adamu Chan and Edmund Richardson, who met while they were incarcerated at San Quentin State Prison. They were speaking as part of the KALW public media podcast, Uncuffed. Adamu Chan helped produce that episode. KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Kavanaugh. La Jolla Playhouse continues to release new digital without walls shows online since live performances are still not allowed. Its latest, Spittin' Truth to Power While Light Leaping for the People, was released during Black History Month, but its message is timeless. KPBS arts reporter Beth Accomando speaks with Jacole Kitchen, one of the producers from the La Jolla Playhouse, about what to expect from this free three-part series. Jacole, 
Tell me what Spitting Truth to Power is and what its origins were. The full title is Spitting Truth to Power While Light Leaping for the People. And it's a three-part intergenerational musical poem that is the yin and the yang, that is the ancient and the new, the male and the female. It is an intergenerational piece that was created by two artists, Elise Smith Cooper, who is an octogenarian, and Shami D, who is a millennial. Uh, both are storytellers, Elise generally through words, Shami D through music. We, the people of light, arise! We march, we arm! We aim to blot out ignorant envy of who we are and what we stand for. Spirit ignited. Creativity. We switched to digital content about a year ago, uh, last March, when everything shut down. We were very fortunate to immediately be able to shift to this digital world with having done the Without Walls Festival for so many years and that being a staple of what we do here at the Playhouse we were able to reach out to many artists who were used to working outside of the walls, the confines of the theater and say, and what are you thinking? But like we do with everything uh, that we produce at La Jolla Playhouse, we went to a community group, the Playhouse Leadership Council, that is a, a group of community advocates who love theater and love the Playhouse and help us expand who thinks of the Playhouse as home. Elise Smith Cooper is a longtime member of PLC. And we went to this group and we said, this is what we're producing. This is what we're doing for this digital world. What's missing? And Elise said, one of the things that's missing is the intergenerational connection. What the old can learn from the young, what the young can learn from the old. We're in this place where it's the battle between the millennials and the baby boomers and us Gen Xers are just somewhere in between. But it's, it's the time for us to be able to listen to each other and learn from one another because our experiences aren't that different. Now, I understand this is done kind of in the tradition of griot, but what does that mean? What is that? It's a West African tradition of uh, storytelling, but what does it mean? Exactly that. It's a West African tradition of storytelling, but the oral storytelling of carrying on our history through oral storytelling and through music. And this is very much in that tradition because it is, it's the music and the words that are carrying on this history. As you'll see in the first piece, the sermon, it really is a, a look back at what we have overcome, the history of African-Americans in this country, all the way up to our very most recent history with the protests that were happening last year after the murders of George Floyd and Ahmaud Aubrey and Breonna Taylor that happened in such a short period of time. And people were so angry and it was so reminiscent of what was happening in the civil rights movement and what was happening in the late eighties, early nineties, where people are just crying for justice in the early 80s and 90s, it was happening through rap music. That was actually one of the things that we talked about with Elise is she said she wants to find a way to connect to the younger people. And she felt like hip hop, this music, putting it to music is a way to get folks to listen to the story of their history. So that's part one, the sermon. The second part is a, it's, it's literally a prayer. It's a prayer for justice. It's a prayer for resolution it's a prayer for resurrection please watch over the families whose children have passed place peace in their hearts 
And the third part is a coming together of following of the ancestors and realizing that we just have to listen to our history. We have to feel the power of the path that the ancestors have laid for us. So my beloveds, that's the way it was in those days. The imposters were so sure they had the people of light surrounded in a shroud of darkness, sewn together by hatred, fears, and lies. They were so drunk on pride and arrogance, they became bloated. They forged ahead, swimming in the blood of innocence and feasting on lynched flesh. They plan to manipulate us. It's such a beautiful piece. All three parts all together are nine minutes. It will be the most powerful nine minutes of your year thus far, I can guarantee you. Now, the video that's called Sermon is the one that... It, it has this wonderful sense of anger at injustice and making a statement. And this is the video that you are asking people to engage with in your sermon challenge. So what is that sermon challenge? The sermon challenge is social media campaign that we have started where it is a call to action. What you'll find when you watch the sermon video is the first one minute is a call to worship that is bringing the people together. What we are doing is carrying that on with a call to action. As you'll see, the sermon ignites the history and, and the passion and, and what we need in order to move forward. And so what we're asking people to do is respond to that. What does that ignite in you? Uh, and to express themselves through poetry, through song, through dance, however you want to respond we will provide you with a track of just the music. If you want to create your own song or your own poem to go on top of that. And so what does this sermon ignite in you? We challenge you to respond. The sermon challenge is a call to action. And then once you collect these videos, are they going to be shared on social media, on the website? Yeah, they'll be shared through social media, through Facebook, Instagram, all of the other sites that the young people use that I'm not necessarily well versed on. Uh, I know it is on TikTok. So we will just, we will be posting the responses as part of this challenge. And talk a little bit about the production of these videos, because these are well-produced pieces and you've incorporated like a montage of historical images in the first one. So what was the production for this like? We approached this project like a film versus um, a piece of theater. We had a 14 hour shoot day, all done within the California employment rules, all done within safety and COVID compliant. But then Shammy D did all of the editing. So Shammy D is uh, such a multi-hyphenate artist. He is, he produced all of the music for the piece. This is all of his original music. But we also found out he is a video editor as well. So he create he edited all of these videos, created the montage. I felt like we had gone back to work, you know, for, for just a brief moment. I felt like we we were doing what we do again instead of being in front of the screen. All right. I want to thank you very much for talking about spitting truth to power. While light leaping for the people. Thank you. That was Beth Accomando speaking with the La Jolla Playhouse's Jacole Kitchen. The digital without walls show Spittin' Truth to Power While Light Leaping for the People is available for free on the Playhouse's website.
KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org.